Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, my name is Dr. Anna Volkmer, and I'm delighted to be your host for this week's show. I'm sure you've heard from me before, but if you're new to our podcast, I am a senior researcher and lecturer at University College London, and I also work clinically as a senior speech and language therapist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in central London. And I work particularly with people with dementia-related communication and swallowing difficulties. Now, this week's podcast topic is the Cochrane Dementia Group, and today we're going to find out more about who they are and what they do. Now, despite attending a Cochrane Systematic Review Training Day a few years ago and knowing that the work focuses on evidence synthesis, um, I am never sure I've really appreciated how Cochrane actually works. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Joining me today, I have two experts in the area. So first of all, Dr. Terry Quinn, a clinical senior lecturer and honorary consultant from the University of Glasgow and joint coordinating editor of the Cochrane Dementia Group. We also have Dr. Jenny McCleary, consultant psychiatrist and joint coordinating editor of the Cochrane Dementia and Cognitive Improvement Group. Perhaps we could start off with some introductions. So Terry, could you tell the listeners a little bit about your work in dementia and how you got involved with Cochrane? Yeah, thanks, Anna. So um, I am Terry Quinn. Uh, I'm a clinician from Glasgow in the UK. So uh, wearing my clinical hat, which I wear for 50% of the week, I work in geriatric medicine, so I look after older people. At the moment, most of my clinical work is around stroke, with also quite a lot of vascular dementia. For the other half of my week, I do research that spans dementia, frailty, stroke, and lots of other things, including Cochrane, which we're going to talk about. How did I get involved with Cochrane? Well, I was working on a PhD in the field of stroke, and it was looking at stroke recovery. And it struck me that we were measuring things like how quickly someone can walk, how well they can use their hand. But the thing that was really impacting on the quality of life of stroke survivors was memory and thinking problems. So I then got quite interested in how you want to measure those. And just completely speculatively, I emailed Cochrane Dementia and said, hello, I'm a researcher. Would you like me to work with you? And the response was yes. I went down to Oxford for a while and worked there. And I must have done something right, because now with Jenny, I'm one of the coordinating editors. Brilliant. So, oh, that's that's how the best things happen, just through a pleasant incidental email. That's fantastic. And so thank you, Terry. We're, I'm now going to move to Jenny. Now, I know, Jenny, you've picked up knitting as your New Year's resolution, but <laughs> I would... that's my, my lockdown skill of 2021. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, but I'd really like to hear a little bit more about your work in dementia and how you got involved with Cochrane. Okay, so yes, I'm Jenny McCleary. I am also a clinician, but I'm not a geriatrician. I'm a psychiatrist for older people. And I work in Oxfordshire in a community mental health team. And I probably spend 
about 50% of my time working uh, in the memory clinic aspect of the team and about 50% in general mental health problems. Um, so Co the Cochrane Dementia Group has been based in Oxford um, since it started 22, 23 years ago now. And the previous coordinating editor was a colleague of mine, a consultant psychiatrist. So I got involved as an author, actually. He was looking for somebody to join a group that was writing a review on cognitive reframing for caregivers of people with dementia and asked me if I'd be interested. And I got involved working on that review and enjoyed it and gradually just got roped in um, a bit more to the editing side and then to the coordinating editor role with, um, with Terry. So, um, yeah, one of those organic sort of things that started being in the right place at the right time, I suppose, and fitting in very much with uh, what I was looking to do. I had a, a nascent academic career, I have to say, which I'd abandoned and was working only clinically. But at that stage of my career was looking for something else to do alongside the clinical work. Uh, and it's fitted really nicely in there for me interesting how our journeys through clinical academia kind of go up and down. So can you tell me what is Cochrane? Okay so we used to be called the Cochrane Collaboration and I think that gives you a good clue. We're, we're an international group, non-commercial, mostly volunteers and we work to bring together clinical evidence and try and make sense of that. And within the umbrella group of Cochrane are lots of individual review groups. And Jenny and I work for the group that is concerned with dementia research. Um, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about what Cochrane Dementia do other than the traditional meta-analysis, I guess, which is what many of us think of? Sure. So Cochrane Dementia are just one of the review groups within the, the, the broader entity of Cochrane. Um, so we have a remit around trying to bring together evidence and make that evidence useful for clinicians, for researchers, for policymakers as well, for people writing guidelines. So we look for published evidence. We pull that together. We critically appraise it. And I think that's one of the important things that we do. You know, we, we cast a critical eye over the research and then we we try and make some kind of synthesis of all of that and give messages to the people that, that need it. You know, the on-the-ground clinicians or people looking to do future research or, or indeed policymakers. We also have done quite a lot of work around raising standards in dementia research. Um, there is still some work to be done there, but we uh, have published guidance on how to report certain kinds of research. And we've also done some work around how to analyse and how to perform certain kinds of, of meta-analysis. And I've probably missed out loads of other important stuff that we do that Jenny could maybe remind me about. No, I think that was a good summary, Terry. I mean, our scope covers dementia, delirium, and really any chronic cognitive disorder. So we would also produce reviews on the chronic sequelae of head injury, for example, although acute head injury sits with a different group, which is the injuries group. Yeah. Um, and we're interested in 
interventions. We're interested in diagnostic tests and we're just beginning to dip our toe into reviews of um, studies of prognostic factors and prognostic models as well. Um, so, yes, it is evidence synthesis with or without meta-analysis. So there's quite a lot of reviews um, that aren't um, suitable for meta-analysis, particularly in some of the complex interventions, diverse complex interventions. Yeah. But, yeah, that's what we do. Sounds very familiar. I did a um, systematic review as part of my PhD studies, and I'm an interventionist primarily, and Yes, a meta-analysis just was not feasible, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially in speech and language therapy. Now, I, I know when we were preparing for this um, podcast, you also mentioned primary progressive aphasia, but maybe we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, because one of the things that Terry mentioned really resonated um, around uh, critically analysing the the um, evidence. And I think that's particularly tricky sometimes for clinicians to have skills in, develop skills in, maintain skills in. And so having Cochrane do that is really helpful. But I guess some people might say that all Cochrane dementia do is criticise other people's re research. So, um, and why do you not do your own original research? How would you, what would you say to that, Jenny? Well, I don't think of us, of what we do primarily as criticism. I think we're communicators, actually. So I think what we're trying to do is um, communicate research for the reader. So that's the, the people that Terry mentioned. Also, actually, I don't think he did mention Cochrane reviews are aimed at patients and carers as well. And every review comes with a plain language summary to try and make it accessible to, to anybody. But I think um, we also, our, our communicating research is good for the people who've done the research as well. And it can really increase the visibility of your research to have it in a Cochrane review. So... I'm an author also on a review of drug treatments for sleep problems in dementia. And there is really surprisingly little research on that, considering what a big clinical problem it is. Um, but there's a, a team in a university in Brazil who've got an interest in that. And uh, their study of trazodone for sleep problems in dementia is a small study, but it's one of the positive studies and I think um, including it in the review, which is very highly cited by anyone who's writing about managing sleep problems in dementia, has uh, probably greatly increased the visibility of that study. And I know that they've used um, the recommendations in the dementia, in the Cochrane Dementia Review to help them argue for further research funding. So I think... Um, I think we we can be a support to researchers rather than just a critic. Um, but, you know, you're right. I'm completely full of admiration for the people who are there on the front line actually doing the clinical trials, which is clearly a much, much harder job than sitting at a desk and synthesizing the evidence. So, um, yes, we are. I think we do. So I hope we do something useful for the readers and the researchers. But I certainly think that the people doing the studies have the harder task. Well, I, I'm, I'm 
really pleased to hear that there's more accessible versions as well coming back around to the patients and their families because I think often it's hard for people themselves and their families to really know what's out there you know and make decisions about what about evidence or understand evidence and um I want to ask a, a slightly unplanned question which do you, are those co-produced those accessible versions uh yeah not as much as they should be they're all reviewed by uh consumers at least in our group so we'll have a consumer reviewer who looks at those when the peer reviewers are looking at the full um, review. But we haven't really got a bank of people at the moment who are interested in actually doing the writing. So we incorporate feedback from consumers, but it would be nice to have some more um, carers probably in our group who were interested in even more involvement in that. Yeah. And if you ever need any guidance on making them accessible and aphasia friendly, you know where to find me. Uh, we've got your number. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I guess uh, coming back to clients and carers and family members, I think they often will hear about research and think it's the answer. But I think it is important, similarly with clinicians, isn't it, to understand the pros and cons of some of the research out there. And so, Terry, some people might again say, why are you so negative about some exciting treatments and technologies? Can you tell us a bit more about that? So I, I guess I'm building on what Jenny said, you know, we're not these bad people in an ivory tower just criticising all the research that flies past us. You know, I, would, I, I do some primary research as well, and it is tough. You know, so I'm very sympathetic to the problems and I understand why decisions are made around the design and the conduct of research. But at the end of the day, what we're doing and what researchers are doing is trying to make things better for people with dementia. And if you just accept things that maybe aren't giving the right answer, you're just going to keep repeating the same mistakes and we won't progress the field. So we do, we do have to be a little bit critical. You know, um, so here's where I get controversial. Go on. Let's just get in early with this. Go let's, on. Think, let's think about amyloid treatments, you know. So many trials of amyloid treatments now, whether they work or not, you know, it's still up for debate. But one could argue, you know, has, has the scientific community learned the lesson from previous amyloid trials? Because we seem to just be repeating the same trials over and over again and hoping that if we make them bigger or longer, we're going to get a result. Maybe that's not the way to, to make a difference. Could you say the same for some behavioural interventions as well, who are trying to often copy the kind of randomised controlled model proposed by, you know, some of the pharmacological interventions that maybe this kind of analysis, uh, the, the kind of systematic reviews can actually help us understand that there might be other ways of, of evaluating those therapies as well? Yeah. So, you know, as, as your intervention becomes more complex, it becomes more and more difficult to do that very, that very traditional placebo versus intervention. Let's look at outcomes at six months, and you know that will give us an answer. You know that that becomes more and more difficult. But dementia is difficult. You know, dementia is messy. It's complex. I think we've got to embrace that complexity. We've got to look at new new ways of performing trials and new ways of synthesizing trials. And I think within our group, that's one of the things that we are. We get quite excited about. So if we look at 
new ways of trying to pull together studies and make sense of them. And if I can give you an example of that from a review that I'm helping with at the moment, one of our most cited reviews in the last couple of years looked at multi-component interventions to try and prevent delirium. Mm. And we found that they worked, but it was a bit black box. You know, a multi-component intervention worked, but what was it? You know, what, what were the magic ingredients? So in our update of that review, we're working with University of Leicester and we're doing some more complicated stats where we try and drill down into what are the bits of the intervention that are common across the trials and which of those bits actually seem to be driving any difference and which bits aren't. And um, no spoilers, I won't tell you what we found, but we have found some common things within these interventions that actually seem to be making a difference and some things that maybe aren't making such a difference. Oh, I hadn't heard that yet. I hadn't heard that hot off the press news yeah. in that from that one. I, if I just go back to that, what you said about more behavioural interventions there, because I think there is also a problem actually with those not being replicated, with people not trying to use the same interventions again, because often what we find in reviews of the behavioural kind of interventions is the trials are small. Um, and everybody who dips a toe into that wants to kind of tweak it and do their own intervention. And because the trials are small, you, you'll never really find out it, what works. So a good example of that is trials for exercise in dementia. So um, that's a really kind of hot, popular topic. Everyone wants to know about exercise in dementia. But there are masses of tiny trials. They're all doing different interventions in different populations. Um, and there's really no way of kind of synthesizing those. And there is a there's a place for a lot more kind of dull replication, I think, of things that look promising. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. And the other thing I've this kind of ties in with lots of the work I've been doing um, in in speech and language therapy is that often I found that people are already doing clinically delivering some of it. So sometimes I found the question isn't necessarily whether it works, but how much works. And and as as Terry was saying, what is the key bit that you must deliver and what is the bit that isn't perhaps so relevant? Um, but I, I think that's really, that is such a complicated notion, isn't it? It's so complicated. Now I've got a few other questions when we, I'm really enjoying these questions when we plan these questions. And um, these were questions that we plan to be a little bit um, contentious. And um, so I'm quite looking forward to the next one, which is, do people ever approach you and say, I am working on drug X. Why do you not do a, a review of this drug X? Uh, they do. Not, not always people are working on it themselves, but we get lots of um, we get lots of people saying, you know, can we do a review on this or that? And Quite often, they are rather obscure little drugs. I'd say this happens a lot less than it did in the past. When I started in Cochrane, it was happening all the time. Um, uh, we took a policy decision, actually, that we were only going to review uh, dr 
particularly this is relevant to drug interventions or some tests, if they were licensed or close to licensing. Because as you know, there have been many, many, many dead ends in dementia drug research. And we could end up with an awful lot of um, trials that are a bit moribund, really, that almost before the trial is finished, people have lost interest and it's moved on and it's never going to be updated. So we tend to say a polite no to anything that's not about to be uh, in clinical use. It's got to we've got to think that our reviews are going to be clinically useful. Right, right. And I guess um, I think that something that ran through my mind there was that the idea that if you were if I was the person who was doing that, that I guess that researcher working with the company to produce this drug and we were about to launch it and then you did at Cochrane did a, um, a review, would it be almost like a seal of approval? Or, you know, I mean, that's all... <laughs> No, because it would probably say more research is needed. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's what point. we get criticised for most, is that people say all Cochrane reviews have the same conclusion, which is, you know, yes, maybe, but more research is needed. Um, no, I, I don't think anybody would, uh, would see it as a seal of approval at that early stage. I think um, in other fields, perhaps where there are um, bigger trials and people have finally, you know, got treatments that they can make really definitive conclusions about, then um, a, a good Cochrane review that says, you know, this is now the established treatment yeah. is really valuable. But dementia research is sadly not really at that at that stage. We're still dealing with interventions in particular that our conclusions are a lot more tentative mm, so it's it's not like nice in a way where you know I'm just for sake of comparison nice I remember the nice dementia guidelines said that all uh, said that anyone with mild to moderate dementia should be offered cognitive stimulation therapy and then all the NHS trusts tried to deliver cognitive stimulation therapy. <laughs> We're updating our review on cognitive stimulation Are therapy. Oh, exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people um, think that that uh, was not necessarily the best recommendation. Um, yeah. Not saying that there's poor evidence for cognitive stimulation therapy, but there's not necessarily better evidence that, yeah. for that than there is for other things. Yeah. The, the motto of Cochrane is trusted evidence um, because we work when we work with bodies like NICE and we work with, with, with guideline developers and it's why we have to be very careful about how we create that synthesis of course. because if, if, you know, if, if we are saying you know there is high quality evidence that this thing works then you know that that then becomes a recommendation for practice and the, re the reach of Cochrane evidence is international so we have to be so careful, you know, and I don't, I don't make any apologies for that, yeah. you know, and if, and if that means, if that means that there has to be replications of studies to prove an effect, I think that's okay, because if we didn't do that, we potentially start investing lots of money in a treatment that doesn't work so well, 
you know, and it doesn't, at the end of the day, improve things for people living with dementia. Thank you, Terry. I'm I'm going to move back onto our planned questions. That was I. Thank you for um, indulging in my extra questions. And one of the questions we had, and we've touched on this really when we've been talking a little bit more about amyloid and things like that. There's hardly any drugs. We know that generally that there are hardly any drugs that really work in dementia. So why? I guess why bother summarising those? Yeah, we often have this existential crisis within Cochrane. <laughs> why? Why do we do what we do? Well, I mean, I, the first thing, I, I, as Jenny's already said, is we don't only do drugs. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the exciting things that are happening in dementia are, are non-pharmacological, and for some of them, there is reasonably good evidence now. And also, we don't only do trials. Again, as Jenny said, we look at things like prognosis. What, what are the things that might predict your recovery from a cognitive insult? What are the things that might predict your decline from dementia? We're looking at tests as well. We're looking to see what, what is the best way to maybe make a diagnosis of dementia or a subtype of dementia. So, you know, yes, drugs have been disappointing to date in dementia, but there is a lot of other exciting research happening. And um, I think it's a privilege that we get to try and pull all of that together and make sense of it. And I think I would say, I mean, drug use is not just disease modifying treatments, is it? People with dementia are prescribed a lot of drugs. They're prescribed a lot of drugs for, I mentioned sleep problems, but for mood problems, for behavioural problems, for pain. We've got some reviews that are about deprescribing. So when to stop cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine, we've just published that review. We updated last year our review on discontinuing antipsychotics in dementia and the review on antidepressants for depression in dementia really shows that they're not very effective um, and probably shouldn't be first-line treatment, whereas the review on psychological treatments for anxiety and depression in mild dementia had some positive findings. So I think I would say that we do try to take a pretty balanced view of how drugs should and should not be used, perhaps, in dementia. I think you're really dispelling this myth that I think I I kind of had this mythical belief that Cochrane was more about medics at some point in my career. And you've re you're really dispelling that. So there are lots of non-medic, I guess, people involved with Cochrane. You've described lots of non-medically focused reviews. Do you want to add to that? Who is in your team? Who, who are part of the group you work with? Yeah, so our core team, uh, Terry and I are both medics. Our deputy coordinating editor is a professor of nursing. Oh. Um, and then we've got some information specialists and a managing editor. And our editorial board includes people with particular interests in non-pharmacological interventions, some of whom are medics and some of whom are not medics. And our author team, um, our author teams are really diverse backgrounds, actually nurses, psychologists, physiotherapists, speech and language therapists. <laughs> yeah, so really all kinds of um, allied health professionals. And quite some time ago now, we had one review that was led by a caregiver. 
Okay. And that was that was a review of interventions for wandering in dementia. But that's the only one. I mean, that takes me back a bit to caregiver involvement. You asked about the accessible, mm-hmm. accessible versions of the reviews. We do try and involve caregivers to to a degree in some other roles as well. So, for example, we've had a couple of reviews where caregivers have been involved in prioritising outcomes and telling us what are the key outcomes for the review and which outcomes we should include in our summary of findings table. So can I just ask, who decides priorities on what to look at at Cochrane? Yeah, I mean, prioritisation is a discussion we've been having a lot in, in, in the last 18 months because there are so many things that we could do reviews on. Mm. You know, we, we have we have to decide which are the ones that we're going to give support to. We've been thinking about different ways of doing that. I think we would like to involve people living with dementia and their caregivers more in that process. Uh, and we're just we're trying to work out the best way that we might we might do that. What what what's been quite interesting to students that work with me looked at all of the different national dementia research priority setting exercises that have happened in different countries over the last few years and they've all came up with very different priorities which I thought was quite interesting. I think it's a really difficult area because NIHR who funds about half of all the Cochrane groups in different topics have asked us all to concentrate more on prioritisation but we have very limited resources to do that. And the priorities that we find will depend entirely on who we ask. So it is it is a, a, a difficult area. We have for some years relied to a degree on the James Lind Alliance yeah. um, project that was done in dementia, because obviously they um, had... a a relatively large amount of resource that went into that project, which we couldn't hope to replicate. Um, so although they're questions that they come, came up with are not review questions, they have given us areas to concentrate on. Um, we would love to know about prioritisation exercises that go on elsewhere in the world, because it's obviously mm. much easier for us being a UK-based group to hear about what happens in the UK. But we are, it's an international collaboration. So if anybody listening <laughs> has some um, information about what the national priorities are in their country, then that would be really, really helpful to us. We'll mention how people can get in contact at the end of the podcast, but just in case you stop listening now, if you look under the podcast, we'll, there'll be some links um, for you there. But I'm really pleased to hear that. I, as Terry was talking about the different the, your, the work your student was doing, I was thinking I, I'm I'm guessing that would include you know that different culture, different cultures, different linguistic backgrounds. There'll be different issues across the world, won't there, influencing all of these things. And then individually, of course, with our clinical hats on, every person you work with, when you try and provide person-centered care, which we all do, <laughs> everybody's so different. They're already, everyone's already a, a uniquely different person by the time they get dementia, aren't they? So, And I mean, you're interested in primary progressive aphasia, Anna, yeah. and we, we are um, just at the beginning of a review process of producing a review about that. But because it's a relatively rare condition, if we just do a general prioritization exercise, it's never going to come out at the top. So 
there's that to take into account as well. Do you only go for the the really big topics or do you go for important topics in rarer conditions too? I think think that's so important. There's almost a sort of equity issue there and our remit isn't just dementia, it isn't just Alzheimer's. So we've tried to reach out to other research communities that are relevant to us. So we, we tried to do some priority setting in delirium yeah. We tried to do some priority setting in vascular dementia. We tried, not so successfully, but we tried to do some priority setting around care homes. Oh, and, you know, and, and, you know, the, the priorities and, and people yeah. that work in that space. Which is, yeah, huge at the minute. I'm guessing there'll be lots of new issues as well post-COVID. <laughs> There's all that to deal with too. Okay, well, um, um, thank you for dealing with my tricky questions. <laughs> I know you get asked these questions sometimes by people and I I think it's been really I've actually really enjoyed hearing how you deal with those questions and being able to add in my own questions and given um I said this when we were planning the podcast again I keep coming around to this you know given you've got a primary progressive aphasia potentially a review kind of in the offing I was saying how can I get involved and I'm sure many of our listeners will be thinking that. So I wondered if you could share with our listeners, how can they, or how can I get involved with Cochrane if I wanted to? So there are, you can get involved at lots of different levels in Cochrane. So there is an organization called Cochrane Crowd, which is actually led by our own information specialist from the dementia group, but it's um, a Cochrane wide thing and that um, allows people to get involved with small tasks that are helpful to Cochrane, particularly about classifying evidence. So it started with just identifying RCTs, but now there are some slightly more complex tasks being built in for the crowd. So it's essentially a kind of big citizen science project doing, uh, doing things that are useful for Cochrane. And that's Um, A really good way, I think, to just join the community and people can do it on the go. They can sit on a train and do sort of 15 minutes of whatever the current task is. And people can select topic areas that they're particularly interested in as well. So that's one way to do it. Um, Beyond that, um, it's getting involved really with the individual review groups. It is difficult to just kind of turn up and say, I want to help to write a review because reviews are generally written by kind of big teams who need some expertise already. But there is Cochrane training available and we can sometimes find teams that can slot in someone who's relatively inexperienced. So a bit of topic knowledge and a bit of training or experience in systematic reviewing or evidence synthesis elsewhere, which might have been, you know, doing one for your PhD or something Mm. can be a good way into a team. Mm. Most countries have Cochrane centres, countries or regions have Cochrane centres. So there's Orders, Cochrane Canada and Cochrane Germany and Cochrane Australia and the Ebo American Cochrane Centre. And those are good places to approach because they may know of local author teams who are looking for help. So it's yeah, so I would say those are the 
the key ways in. If you've got a bit of experience, there's something called Cochrane Task Exchange. So people who are writing reviews and need a little bit of help with a review, maybe with the screening of um, the search results or doing some risk of bias assessments, will post a task and then people can volunteer to, to do it. So it's not the commitment of a full review that might take you a couple of years, sadly, <laughs> but it's a more discreet task. So again, when you're trying to build experience, that can be something to offer as well. Anything I've missed, Terry? I think an important thing to say, though, is we, we do try and support people that approach us, you know, mm. even back, you know, many, many years ago when I approached Cochrane, you know, I didn't really, really know what Cochrane was, but I just thought, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested to help. So if, if people are enthusiastic and if they've got a bit of time, you know, and if, if they contact Jenny or I, you know, we, we can often set up a bit, a bit of a discussion and see if we can find something that might that might work for them. So um, just as we come to the finish of our podcast, I wanted to highlight that the importance of Cochrane as a resource is massive. It's not only for researchers and clinicians, it's also, as Jenny and Terry have, have really highlighted, it's for people themselves living with dementia and their families. And as a clinician and a researcher myself, I found myself using Cochrane on numerous occasions to find research literature. And I'm now really motivated to get involved and I will be following up on the advice from today's session. Thank you very much. And if anyone else would like to do the same, then as Terry highlighted, Terry and Jenny are and will be delighted to hear from you. Now we have profiles of today's panelists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts. So if you'd like to ask any follow-up questions, would you both like to share your Twitter accounts now with the listeners? Terry, perhaps? Yeah. So I am at Dr. Terry Quinn, all one word. Fantastic. And Jenny? And I'm not on, I'm not active on Twitter. We have a group site at Cochrane DCIG. Dementia and Cognitive Improvement Group. We'll tag those under the um, podcast and within Twitter as well for you. But um, just finally, to all our listeners, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast through our website, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean and SoundCloud and all the other places that you do find podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. <laughs>